Okay, so this morning as we as we begin a, a new series, I, I thought I would do something that would just be very light, very, you know, kind of be an easy thing. So I'd love everyone to really quickly turn to someone around you uh, and maybe tell them real quick one of the worst things you've ever done in your life. Okay, we'll take like 30 seconds. I'm kidding. Don't actually do that. So can I confess? This is This is going to be a time of confession, okay? At least for me. So can I tell you something bad I did when I was a kid? So, you know, it's awesome that the youth are selling uh, the pumpkins as a fundraiser to be able to go on youth trips and things like that. Um, the church I grew up in, we didn't always have, like, really cool. We didn't have amazing people like the Millers. We had amazing people, but they didn't, like, give us pumpkins and stuff like that. And so we did the very traditional, like, hey, here are your candy bar sales. Or also maybe the candy bar with the off-brand Laffy Taffy type little stick things uh, that would get hard if you didn't eat them too quickly. Um, break your teeth. Dentists love them, I'm assuming. And so anyways, my brother, though, my brother JJ, when he first got into youth group, he was two years older than me, and uh, our rooms were right next to each other. And so I can remember after he first brought home the candy bars, when he wasn't taking them out to school or to church to try to sell them, he'd leave them in his room. And one day we had a really great, endearing, brotherly conversation where he said, hey, loser, uh, if you want any of this candy, you better pay for it. You better use your money and pay for this candy. And so I was like, okay, you're like twice the size of me, so sounds good. I'll do that. And so, you know, quickly, in about a day and a half, I spent all the money that I had on the candy already. I ate quite a bit. I was by far his his uh, best customer. Uh, and then I started to realize I don't have any more money to be able to buy candy, but I really want it. So that's when, you know, you start looking under the couch cushions. Uh, you start, you know, getting into mom and dad's car looking for change. You're looking for any possibility, right? Because you need the candy fix. And uh, I eventually got to a place where uh, I, I began to realize something the last time I went into my brother's room. My brother had um, what I would like to refer to as maybe sort of like if a toddler ran a bank type of system of keeping his money. So candy is here. His dresser is here. And my brother had this great way of, he didn't have like a piggy bank or a jar. It literally was just like, my change is here. And not only that, there would like be wadded up dollar bills, which to me just feels like he was asking me to do this bad thing. Um, but eventually what I started to do is that I would buy my brother's candy with his own money. Which, you know, it's like this dual thing, right? Like I helped him go to youth convention. He's now in, um, in ministry. I probably feel like by me stealing from him, uh, betraying his trust in, in taking his money to buy his own candy, that in some ways I helped him. He probably would have spent it on something worse. But I still feel a little bit bad. In fact, I don't know if I've ever actually told him. Maybe I should call him later. <laughs> but it is funny. Betrayal is something that happens on a micro level like that, that I didn't really mean to hurt my brother or do anything wrong, but it still was a betrayal of trust. It was something in which I violated something. He never asked me specifically, hey, please don't steal my money to buy my, buy my candy. But I think it was just kind of a given, right? In a relationship, whether it be in a family, in a romantic relationship, in friendship, there are sometimes unsaid, unspoken things that we know you just don't do. This morning, we're beginning a brand new series called Canyons. And in this series, we're going to be uh, tackling some light and fluffy topics like betrayal and fear, like loneliness and shame. And I know actually some of you are like, note to self, don't come back to church until this one is done. Uh, 
But honestly, these are topics that every single one of us deal with. Some of us actually deal with it. Some of us just try to bury them and pretend they don't happen. But they're all part of the experience of being human, of living in a world that is full of sin and brokenness. And as we approach this series, we're going to be looking at these topics through the lens of the life of David. And I'm going to tell you about David in a minute. Maybe some of you know who David is. Maybe some of you don't. And that's okay. I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of David's background. And in particular, we're going to be looking at this book in the Old Testament called Psalms. And it's this book full of poetry, of songs, and of prayers. And the vast majority of it is written by this man named David. And what we're going to really have a fun time doing, at least in my opinion, is that we're going to look at how sometimes we look at Scripture as being just this sort of sanitized thing where everything is sort of this cutesy little thing where it's um, fun. And we're going to realize that in, in the book of Psalms, in particular when David writes, he just like lays his heart out there. Like I honestly wonder if David would have written some of the things he knew if he knew that like centuries and thousands of years afterwards people would be reading basically his diary. Um, I mean, this is like if you had your own little diary and people got to read it. This is kind of what it is. And what I love about it is you're going to see that David, who is described as a man after God's own heart, is also a deeply flawed person who recognized, though, his need for a Savior. And my hope is that you will recognize the fact that if David, who is this titan of faith, if he experienced these things, you're not alone. You're not weird. Well, maybe you are. That's okay. I'm weird. Um... But you're not alone in the struggles that you have. You're not alone in the thoughts that you have. And as being this morning, I I want to read to you this uh, quote from Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson was this great thought leader, pastor, and kind of a pastor to pastors. And he wrote this uh, in regards to kind of the Psalms themselves. He said this, The Psalms teach people to pray, helping them to give voice to the entire experience of being human, and to do it both honestly and thoroughly. We tend to think that prayer is what good people do when they are doing their best. It is not. Only as we develop raw honesty, detailed thoroughness in our praying, do we become whole, truly human in Jesus Christ, who also prayed the Psalms. Let's talk about betrayal. In this room right now, I know every single one of us have experienced betrayal on some and or the other. Maybe it's helpful for a working definition of what betrayal is. Betrayal simply is just the abandonment or violation of trust by someone close to you. It's the abandonment or violation of trust by someone close to you. Now that right there tells us something that's tough about betrayal. Betrayal only happens in relationships in which we have given someone trust. So you can't be betrayed by a stranger. You only can be betrayed by someone who you have given trust to. You've had some sort of relationship. You are uh, in a romantic relationship, in a working relationship, in a uh, family type of relationship, a friendship. You can't be betrayed by someone. Uh, that, that, that's why it's like no one, no one ever experienced deep hurt of betrayal by just a random stranger. Because they couldn't do it. You, they don't have anything invested in that you've given out. Betrayal is this terrible feeling, and we all know what it feels like because it's this mixture of I feel hurt by something that was said, by something that was done. But it's also this thing where you feel this disorienting feeling because you in some ways feel like this person would never do that to me. It's this 
feeling that in many ways can be crippling. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you've experienced it in a romantic relationship. I have in a past relationship. I've experienced that. Maybe you've experienced it from a close friend. Maybe from a family member. Maybe some of you would also even be honest and you know the feeling of being the one who was the betrayer. And the burdens and the hard feelings that that brings as well. This morning as we dive into this idea of betrayal that can be both intentional and somewhat unintentional, we're going to talk about David in his relationship with a man named Saul. We're going to read from uh, a really interesting psalm where David is incredibly honest and really raw. But here's what I want us to do, and we're going to do throughout this series with these different tough topics, is we're going to talk about a couple things. We're going to talk about, first of all, where is God in the midst of these things? You know, it's oftentimes during the midst of betrayal and fear and loneliness and shame, we can just have these feelings that we're just wondering, where are you, God? You know, if you've ever been to a canyon or, or a gorge is another type of uh, thing like a canyon, you know, they're, they're kind of deep and they're, they're breathtaking and they're beautiful. But if you are stuck down in the middle of it, they can just feel this feeling of, I'll never get out of here. If you're ever in the middle of one during the middle of the night, it can be frightening. And so we want to talk about where is God in the midst of this? How do we continue to trust him during these things? And then also, how do we as followers of Jesus respond to these things? How do we respond to betrayal? How do we respond to fear? How do we respond to loneliness? How do we respond to shame? And as we're going to do it, I'm going to ask you to be open. Because the truth is, oftentimes what we have been taught and what our natural disposition is towards these things doesn't necessarily oftentimes match up with Jesus' teachings and his thoughts of how the kingdom of God should look. And some of them are going to be, you've heard them before, but some of them are going to be more radical and feel counterproductive. But I promise you, as we dive into Scripture, would you be open to what Jesus has to say? So let's talk about David. David is this unique figure, okay? And to get to where David's story is, you need to understand the larger story that David is a part of. So God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates humanity. And through a series of, of, of bad choices, one original, there's this fall where there's this broken relationship between God and his people. Sin and shame enters into the world. And, and afterwards, God is constantly trying to redeem and restore that relationship. That's, that's really the entire story of the whole Bible, but in particular, the, New Te- or the Old Testament. And so God has this special relationship with this people group called the Israelites. Sometimes we refer to them as the Jewish people. And the Jewish people, even though God continues to save them, to redeem them from, from other people, and he continues to talk about this idea of how he wants them to be this holy nation, this holy people. And holy just means set apart, to be different. These people constantly go back, and they want to be like everyone else around them. And so in this moment in history, God is speaking to his people. He's leading the people through a prophet. And a prophet just means it's a person who's a spokesperson from God. Someone who God communicates directly with to then spread a message to the rest of the people. And the prophet at this time is a man named Samuel. 
And Samuel in his own right has a really interesting story. If you don't know Samuel's story, um, start in 1 Samuel and then work your way to 2 Samuel. You'll hear some more of what we'll talk about in that. But Samuel is kind of frustrated because he realizes that, that the people shouldn't be like the rest of the people. Yet, yet the Israelites keep begging, we want a king, we want to be like the other nations around us. Give us a king. And so God just says, listen, if, the, if my children want a king, so be it. Give them a king. And so the first king that is anointed is a man named Saul. Now, Saul is this guy who, um, he's tall, he's handsome, he's this macho warrior. He fits sort of that prototypical, like what you would think in an an action hero. I mean, as you're trying to get a picture, maybe just picture me right now, and that might be a great little sort of thing. You know, as a person who's about 6'3 or so, um, minus 5 or 6 inches, um, But Saul just fits this prototypical what every human would think when they think of, like, who would be a king. Saul fits that. And early on, Saul does really great. He's faithful to God. He leads well. But eventually, Saul makes some choices and begins to disregard what God has for him. And he becomes unfaithful. And God is frustrated by that. And so God tells Samuel, listen, Saul is no longer going to be the king, and I want you to go and find and anoint the next king of Israel. And now, like most kingdoms that we still know today, most royalty, it's a normal thing that typically you have a king and it follows sort of the royal blood, the line. And so it's pretty pretty interesting that, that Saul did such a bad thing and was so unfaithful that God would relinquish that. And so what happens is Samuel gets sent out to find the next king, and he finds himself... Uh, with this family, this somewhat insignificant family of a man named Jesse. And Jesse has many sons. And, 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 and Samuel keeps looking at the sons, and he starts with the oldest, who just seems like he would be another kind of Saul-like figure. And slowly through this process, God continually says, no, 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 to all of these brothers until they get to the youngest brother, the one who uh, is kind of the overlooked, the one who's out actually as a shepherd in the field. And it is this person whom God tells Samuel, you are to anoint him to be the next king. And his name was David. Now David, at this moment in his life, there's nothing super significant about him, at least on the outside. But the Lord tells Samuel, listen, no, 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 you're looking at outward appearances. The Lord looks at the heart. And so David is anointed as the next king. Now think about this, though. It's not as if Saul is out of power. Saul is still king. This is just, it, this is like a weird scandal that's going on, started by God. And so David is anointed as king. And as far as we know, Saul does not know this, uh, at least for quite a while. And so what happens is David and Saul, their lives end up getting intertwined in a very interesting and unique well, in way. Eventually, Saul, who continues to become kind of an arrogant, angry person would have fits of rage and so it was found out that david was a great musician and so david eventually was brought into the king's court to play music to calm saul down when he would be angry and so david becomes this person who works for the king who has a lot of interactions with the king eventually there is this story that many of us probably know where where there is this uh, army this enemy there the philistines and they have this giant who is their champion named Goliath and nobody wants to go and face him and yet David feels the call and steps up and he defeats Goliath we see that David continues 
to rise. He eventually becomes a mighty warrior for Saul and his army. He becomes best friend with Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan, who would have been the rightful heir to the throne. We find that, 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 that David is so loved by Saul, Saul tries to give him one of his daughters. And at first he says no because he doesn't feel like he has the prestige to be able to do it. And then he offers him one more time, but this time he has to kill a bunch of guys and grab some interesting body parts. You can read that for yourself. It's kind of weird. Um, but eventually Saul becomes David's father-in-law when David finally decides that he will marry his daughter Michal. You see this relationship becomes intertwined in a deep way. In some ways there's an adversarial aspect to it, but there's also this fatherly king aspect to him. You see, David, as far as we can read through all of this story leading up to where we're about to get, David is loyal and faithful to his king. Even though he knows that he's anointed to be the next king, he doesn't want to steal the throne. He wants to be faithful, and he wants to honor Saul. I mean, again, they're intertwined. His, his, it's the best friend of, it's his dad's best friend. It's his wife's dad. But eventually, David becomes sort of this rock star, where he is just uh, killing, uh, he, he's leading uh, these uh, huge battles, and they begin to sing songs like, Saul killed hundreds, but David killed thousands. And people begin to see him as this uh, rock star warrior. And, and Saul begins to feel sort of his clout, his uh, prestige going down. And David is this rising star. And Saul doesn't like that. And so Saul, already a angry and insecure person, begins to slowly have different moments where he either tries to harm or tries to kill David. You read in 1 Samuel chapter 19, we find in 1.2, actually, Saul sends a few mercenaries to try to find David in the middle of the night sleeping to kill him. And David has this really cool story of how he uh, kind of bamboozles him and leaves this little idle thing in his bed with some goat hair on him. It's kind of cool. Um, you should read it. But it's interesting. I can't imagine what it would be like to be David in this scenario. Where this person who you've had this long-term relationship, who has been your king who you have allegiance to, who is a family member. Can you imagine what it would feel like when you first figured out that he hates you and he wants to kill you? What a disorienting feeling. You know, when we experience betrayal, it really can feel like the rug quite literally has been pulled from under us. It can feel like, is there anything that we can stand upon? And the truth is, most of us, when we experience betrayal... We're not talking about like, hey, someone has put a hit out on you. I mean, maybe someone in this room has had that happen. If you have, woof. And if you're in the witness protection agency, don't tell us. But also tell me because I think it would be kind of cool to know. But man, what a disorienting feeling and then to just have to flee for your own life. Now, I want to read parts of Psalm uh, 59. It's kind of longer, so I'm not going to read the entirety of it, but you can write it down. You can uh, look in your own Bible. It's not going to be up on the screen. But this is a psalm that David wrote. This is a prayer, a poem, a song, however we want uh, to call it, that David writes in response to this moment where he finds out and he's fleeing from these mercenaries who were sent by Saul to kill him. He just says this, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. 
Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me. For no offense or sin of mine, Lord, I have done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look at my plight. You, Lord God Almighty, you who are the God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish the nations. Show no mercy to the wicked traitors. Now let's pause for just a second here. This is pretty intense. Like, at my worst, when I'm worked up and I'm praying, I've got to say, I've never said, God, please, like, just punish people to the worst point who are my enemies right now. Makes me feel a little better than David. I'm not going to lie. He goes on and he talks about how they're like snarling dogs and they're prowling all over there. But then he remembers and he says this, You are my strength. I watch for you. God, you are my fortress. My God on whom I can rely. God will go before me and he will let me gloat over those who slander me. Again, we're getting a little weird here. But then he says, Do not kill them. Which at first you start reading you're like, Awesome, David, like you've, you've got your mind back. But he says, do not kill them because I don't want people to forget how bad they are. He goes on, for their sins of their mouth, for the words of their lips. Let them be caught in their pride for the curse and the lies that they utter. Consume them in your wrath. Anyone ever prayed that before? Consume these people in your wrath. That they will be known to the ends of the earth. He goes on, but he ends with this. He says, but I will sing of your strength. In the morning, I will sing of your love, for you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. You are my strength. I sing praise to you, God. You are my fortress, my God on whom I can reply. What an interesting song to sing. What an interesting prayer to pray. What I love about this is we see an unedited version of somebody who loves God but is experiencing pain. You know, I fear oftentimes when we think about prayer, we care so much about being eloquent. We care so much about um, trying to speak to God like we're writing him a formal letter where we hope that he'll give us a job. Like, dear Lord God Almighty, this is Aaron, you know, your son, Please help me. Regards, Aaron. Here's my address too in case you forgot. You know, we kind of pray like that. But you know what I think? I think God's favorite prayers are honest prayers. I think God's favorite prayers that he hears from us are honest prayers. Where they're unedited. I don't think that when we try to sanitize what we're feeling, that God, like, we're pulling anything over God. I think what he really wants to hear from us is, tell me really what's going on inside of you. Because the truth is, I don't think that God is afraid of our pain or our emotions or our desires. I don't think any of those sort of things scare him. And so I don't think when we come to the God of all the universe that we have to hold back. I think sometimes we we, we, we almost treat God in our prayers like he's this fragile individual of like, oh, I don't want to say this because I don't want to upset him. I mean, I don't know if you know this. He already knows your inmost thoughts. He knows the weird things you think about, which is kind of weird. It makes me a little sad. He knows the thought of your mind. It's why Jesus goes on and talks about how uh, not only should we not 
uh, kill someone, we shouldn't have that thought in our head because God knows that what flows from the mind is really something that's flown out of the hearts. And oftentimes those things can flow into the physical world as well. And so this morning, here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how do we respond in a way that both David did, that's honest and vulnerable, and how do we respond like Jesus Christ does? Now, what's interesting, i got to say, that I didn't tell you about this story, is David, as he's pursued by Saul for a long period of time, I mean, David is, 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 is living in caves for quite a while because Saul is after him. There are multiple times that David has the opportunity to kill Saul. And every single time he chose not to. Every single time he chose grace and mercy, despite the fact that he had been betrayed, despite the fact that Saul would never do the same. So this morning, I want to talk about this. Where's God when we experience betrayal? How do we respond to this betrayal more like Christ? So let's start this with first. How, how do we know or how do we experience God when betrayal is happening? You know, the first thing is this. I think it's really easy, and I think... Satan, oftentimes, when we're experiencing these things, he wants us to feel disoriented. He wants us to feel isolated. You know, if we go back to the very beginning in the garden, we know that as soon as the the, the, the fall of man, when sin first enters into this world, it's in that moment that Adam and Eve realize that they're naked. And they begin to feel shame, and they go and hide. I think that's one of the greatest tactics of Satan is that he wants us, when we sin or sinned against, to feel like we need to hide. To feel like God isn't there. He wants us to feel like we are in the midst of a canyon, and we can't see a way out, and there is no way out. And yet, what I want you to hear this morning, is that if you've been betrayed, it's not your fault. If you've experienced betrayal in your life, it is not your faults. And in the same way, if you have been a betrayer, that doesn't define you. That there is redemption, there is restoration, and there's forgiveness that we're going to talk about in a moment. But I want you to hear this, is that when you have pain in your life, it does not indicate a lack of presence of God. You know, feelings are a great thing. God gave us emotions, and, and he gave it to us for a reason. It helps us process what's going on around us. It helps us uh, un- understand how we should live. But feelings are not something that we should always trust. Feelings can be fleeting, and feelings can be inaccurate. And oftentimes, when we experience things like this, we feel as if God is not there. And the truth is, God never leaves us. God never forsakes us. He is walking with us in the midst of that pain. In fact, when it's happening, to me, I really feel like he is standing beside us. He's grabbing our hand. And and you know what? Sometimes he's not trying to say to us in that immediate moment. Sometimes he's not trying to say, I got a plan to get us out. I think sometimes he just says, I am here with you. And sometimes that's the greatest thing that we need to hear. Because a lot of these things, like betrayal, they take time to process. They're not instantaneous that we experience healing and that forgiveness just happens. And and sometimes we need to know that God will sit with us while we are still processing. 
You know, I love the words that David also wrote in Psalm 57. It's another one where he's writing uh, with this mindset of Saul trying to kill him. He just says this, have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until this disaster passes. I love the posture that David has as he talks about this. He, he asks for mercy, not even because he feels like he's in the right, not because he feels like these others should be um, cast aside and destroyed, but he just asks him because he's finding refuge in him. Some of us, too often, when we experience big feelings, we don't try to find refuge in God. We try to find refuge in another relationship. In fact, some of us, the issue becomes, when we experience betrayal, we decide, I just picked the wrong relationship. I'm going to go to the next one, in the next one, in the next one. Or for some of us, we just choose, I'm just going to stay away from people because I don't want to get hurt again. Both of those responses are not a good one. You know, I love the way that we see the posture of Jesus. And let me just tell you this so you never uh, have to wonder about this. Jesus Christ will never betray you. The God of all the universe will never leave you high and dry. He'll never tell you one thing and then take something away from you. Yeah, there's consequences for our sin and our choices. But our God will never just say, sorry, like I'm leaving you over here, you're by yourself. No. He's a God of second and third and many, many chances. But I, I love what we find in the book of Hebrews. We, we, we read this. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I love that scripture because it reminds us of the fact that Jesus experienced what we experienced. And man, if, if, if you explore the life of Jesus, I mean, think about it. We, we took communion last week and, and whenever we read scripture, we, we start with talking about how on the night that Jesus was betrayed. If there's ever been a person who, who understands the deep heartache of betrayal, it's Jesus. And it wasn't just Judas who got the money. It was Peter. And it was the other 12. It was all of them. They left him in his moment of need. They denied him. And yet still, Jesus went to the cross. So would you know that when you experience these deep feelings like betrayal, would you know that God knows what it's like? In fact, the truth is every single one of us at some point have betrayed God in some sort of way. The other thing we have to do is we have to remind ourselves of just the value that we have. You know, betrayal oftentimes tries to steal this, this value and worth that we have. We can buy into this idea of, well, maybe I deserve this. Maybe this was something that I was just asking for. And you need to anchor yourself into the reality that when we, when we stay in the, under the wings of God, as David uh, said, that we recognize the facts that no, 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 no. Our value and our worth is found in Jesus Christ. And the same is true as when we are the betrayer. Your betrayal doesn't define you. 
You are not that forever. There's not this mark on you forever, which I'm really glad because I know I've betrayed people. I've probably betrayed people in this room before. But we have to remind ourselves of whose we are. All right, how do we respond? I think there's two main ways that we respond. The first one is this. We set boundaries. After betrayal, it's easy to say we're going to get to forgiveness in a second. But there's this reality that it's important and healthy to set boundaries. In Proverbs chapter 4, it just says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Listen, forgiveness and reconciliation are an important part of being a follower of Jesus. But if you've been abused, if you've been betrayed over and over, there is nothing wrong, it's called good wisdom, to put up boundaries in relationships that keep you from dealing with that hurt again. Now, that doesn't mean you set up boundaries with every single person. We don't have to feel like every single person is out to get us, that every single relationship is destined to end in turmoil, that you are going to be betrayed by every single person. But I think it's important to recognize that sometimes, again, like I talked about, some of us go from relationship to relationship to relationship, whether it's romantic or friendships or business dealings, And we tend to, uh, as it also talks about in Proverbs, like a dog that returns to its vomit, we continue to go back to bad things. And so it's important to sometimes have boundaries to say, hey, it's okay to sometimes say, I forgive you, but I don't have to be in this deep relationship with you anymore. I will allow you to still be a part of my life, but not this part. And that's more than okay. That's good wisdom. Because again, The heart is a place that we need to guard. We need to allow ourselves to not set ourselves up to constantly be hurt. I mean, relationships, the reality is that is part of it. We are going to experience hurt in some ways. But we have to be wise on what relationships we invest in. Forgiveness. What do we do with forgiveness? The reason I think forgiveness is so important is, one, Jesus talks about it constantly. He talks about this idea of reconciliation and forgiveness. Now, the difference between the two is just this. Forgiveness is something that Jesus requires us to give. Forgiveness is something that if we hold on to forgiveness, it's like this terrible weight that keeps us from God. Reconciliation, on the other end, is this idea of of a broken relationship being pieced back together in a great way. Now, reconciliation is always the goal. I have experienced relationships where there has been betrayal involved and there has been reconciliation. And the only reason why it's worked is because of the grace of God. Reconciliation is great, but again, God is not calling you to be reconciled with every single person in your life that has been betrayal. Whether it's an abusive relationship, whether it is a relationship that pulls you farther away from God, it's okay again to have those boundaries. But forgiveness is something that I just believe if we don't give forgiveness to others, how can we expect to receive the forgiveness that God has given to us? You see, I believe this. Forgiveness frees you from the burden that is placed on you by betrayal. You know, one of the worst things about betrayal is this. A burden is cast on you. If you're the one who betrays someone, you experience the burden of the fact that you sinned. But even when you're the one who experiences the betrayal, there's this burden that's placed on you. And the truth is, is that if we don't deal with whether it's betrayal or just some sort of brokenness in a relationship in general, if we hold on to that forever, 
If we never just give forgiveness away, it's sort of like we have weights on us and we're trying to swim. It's just going to continue to pull us down over and over again. In Colossians chapter 3, it just says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And above all these virtues, put on love, which binds them perfectly together in unity. I don't know your story. I can only speak from my experience. There's something incredibly freeing about giving giving forgiveness and receiving it. So my hope and prayer is that there may be a moment this morning, this week, for you to lay aside some unforgiveness that you have in your life. Or maybe to seek some forgiveness that you need to have with someone in your life that you've wronged. Maybe it was betrayal. Maybe it was something else. But my hope and prayer is that you don't continue on with that. You know, I oftentimes wonder what would have happened if David responded to some of those feelings he talked about. If he would have just killed Saul the times that he had the opportunity to. I wonder if he would have had that heart posture of a man after God's own heart. Or if it would have changed him. You know... The most amazing thing about Jesus, and I know I've been talking about this a few times lately, but I just can't help it. It's been something God's been working in my soul. It's just this idea of enemy love that doesn't make any sense. Honestly, when I still read it, I'm like, God, are you sure about this? Because this seems really dumb. I'm not trying to judge you. I'm just saying. But we see over and over again throughout Scripture, when things go well, that people who are experiencing things like betrayal persecution, things like that. That when they love their enemy, and as Jesus talked about, that he calls us to this in in, in Matthew. He says, love, you've heard that you should love your neighbor, but I say, and hate your enemy, but I tell you to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. That's so counterintuitive, but the truth is, I believe enemy love can defeat evil. Because we've already seen it happen at the cross. We're reminded in Scripture that every single one of us, because of the sin in our life, have been enemies of God. That our life and our choices have put us at odds with God, with His will and His way. And yet He freely has given that forgiveness. He's freely given that love to us who have wronged Him, who have hurt Him, and who will continue to wrong Him and hurt Him. And yet He loves us anyways. Friends, I think we have to be wise I think we have to live with boundaries. But man, I think, how is a world going to be redeemed and restored? I think it's going to be restored by followers of Jesus, loving people who are against us anyways, who are going to give forgiveness, even when it seems just irresponsible, what seems unlikely. I was moved to tears this week as I watched uh, a a young boy who his, his brother was murdered by this woman. And he gets up on the stand and he gives her forgiveness. And he talks about the the, the love of Christ. And that his hope in his prayer is that she would find Jesus Christ's love. I mean, there is something so beautiful. Every single one of us, if we would have saw the brother get up there and curse her out, we'd say, I totally get it, man. 
And yet instead, he decides to give love, to give grace and extend forgiveness. And he does it because of the forgiveness he's received in his own life. This morning, as we're going to close out with a song, I want to give us an opportunity. Every, every Sunday in this series, you're going to have an opportunity to tangibly respond to the message. And so you got these note, you got these post-it notes in your bulletin. Some of us this morning are holding on to unforgiveness in our hearts. Maybe it's to a person, maybe a situation, an organization. Maybe it's to God himself. Some of us are carrying the burden of the fact that we know we've wronged someone and we need to own up to it. Here's what your opportunity is going to be this morning. Your opportunity is just to simply write whatever it is. Maybe it's a name, maybe it's a situation. And there's crosses on both sides of the room. Jesus reminds us that we can cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. That he can, we can bring our burdens and our sin to the foot of the cross. Because when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he paid the debt for us that we never could pay. He died for every sin we'd ever have. And this is your opportunity maybe to have a tangible moment to just leave it. To, to, to ask for the forgiveness. Maybe some of you this morning need to just receive that forgiveness that Christ has for you. However you want to respond, this will be your moment to do that. So I'm going to pray. And we're going to sing. And you can stand if you want to sing. And just whenever you feel led, whenever you've written something down, you can make your way to either cross and just leave it there. And when you leave it there, would you truly just leave it there? Pray with me. God, I thank you for the fact that you are a God who forgives. God, you forgive the the little things and you forgive the big things. And God, you're not afraid of our emotions. You're not afraid of our honesty. God, you welcome them. So God, this morning I pray that maybe some of us who are feeling hurt this morning would know that you are there, that you are with us, and you are for us. God, maybe some of us this morning are feeling guilt because we know we've betrayed someone. We know we've wronged someone. Would we recognize that, God, we too could be reconciled to you and, God, we could seek forgiveness and reconciliation with someone else? And maybe this morning this would be the catalyst for us to do that. God, some of us this morning know that in our past there have been things that have been done to us, betrayal, brokenness, lies, deceit, whatever it may be. And, God, we are withholding forgiveness from someone. And God, we know it is just tearing us apart. It is holding us back. We know that your desire is that your children would have some sort of closure. And so God, I pray that this morning, God, maybe some of us can have some bravery, some boldness, and some honesty just to seek forgiveness, to give forgiveness. God, we thank you for the cross and the reminder that God, every single sin that we have, God was nailed to that. God, that every bit of the debt that we had was paid on that hill by your son, Jesus. And God, because of it, we can have new life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.